Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, ControlUp, Netrix Policy Pack, and Numescent. If I didn't have sponsorship for this podcast, it simply would not be possible to do it every week. I have yet to miss a week since beginning the podcast over five years ago. And for example, I have to travel for work next week, so the podcast might come out a little early next week or maybe a little late, but I have the ability to bring a mic with me and put the effort into producing an episode even when I'm away from home. And I don't think I'd have the drive to do that uh, without sponsorship and the obligation or the feeling that I have an obligation to get an episode out. So uh, if you enjoy the podcast each and every week, you definitely have these great sponsors to thank. And now for some news. BBcomputer.com recently reported that attackers are targeting VMware ESXi servers unpatched against a two-year-old remote code execution vulnerability to deploy a new ESXi ARGS ransomware, as it's being called. Tracked as CVE-2021-21974, the two-year-old security flaw is caused by a heap overflow issue in the open SLP service that could be exploited by unauthenticated threat actors in low-complexity attacks. Now, this is a patched vulnerability. A patch has been available for this particular vulnerability since the 23rd of February 2021. While the report suggests attacks so far have been targeting ESXi version 6.x, Uh, prior to version 6.7, it is worth pointing out that this particular vulnerability was patched in 7.x2. Over the weekend, it was reported that over 2,400 ESXi devices were said to be compromised. VMware advises admins to install the latest updates for ESXi servers and to disable the open SLP service, which has been disabled by default since 2021. However, some admins of hacked hosts stated they had the service disabled, so perhaps disabling the service alone is not enough, which more reason to stay on top of your patching. If you thought that was a workaround, don't just uh, rely on a workaround, patch, patch, patch. The ransomware, which is reported to be from a new ransomware gang, is said to encrypt files with the .vmxf.vmx.vmdk .vmsd and .nvram extensions on compromised ESXi hosts and creates a .args file for each encrypted document with metadata likely needed for decryption. Bleeping Computer have a comprehensive analysis of exactly what the attack entails and have warned administrators to check for the existence of a vmtools.py file in their store packages directories. This is the same custom Python backdoor for VMware ESXi servers discovered by Juniper in December 2022, so recently, that allowed threat actors to remotely access the devices. If found, the file should be removed immediately. And just this week, an Irish university stated they have been hit by ransomware. In response, the university has had to close its campus until next week. 
Given the timing of the attack, if I was a betting man, I'd say this was likely related to the ESXi vulnerability, but that has not been confirmed via any official channels at this time. Heavy Metal IT Guy on Twitter shared a few tips for this particular vulnerability, well, tips and thoughts, and that includes segment your servers, always a good idea, IPS for all, never expose your management IF, and consider RFC 1918 addressing, and think about your patching cadence, as well as sharing a recovery tool for this particular ransomware that has been provided by the US Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. But really, the underlying message uh, in this instance is patch. Make sure you're on top of your patching. If you're patched for this particular vulnerability, it seems like you should be protected. Following up on a story I covered last week and some other stories earlier this year, BleepyComputer.com have reported on a Google Ads malvertising campaign that is spreading malware installers that leverage KOI VM virtualization technology, which is reported to help evade detection when installing a data stealer. Ars Technica have also put out a warning that people should stop using Google to download software altogether. That is how prevalent these malvertising campaigns have been. It seems they are using a wide range of products. And last week, I had reported that uh, the manufacturers of a popular open source product uh, had put out a plea to Google saying, our product is free. We do not promote or advertise or pay for like Google ads for our product. Uh, but in the search results, others for nefarious purposes are uh, advertising using the keywords for their product, trying to fool people into um, going to their sites to download the product when really it's a, a phishing campaign. And with all things considered, may I suggest using the excellent Evergreen PowerShell module for grabbing the installers of applications when you need them instead. So you could do that uh, via very quick PowerShell commandlets. So for example, you know, find-evergreen app and it'll show you a list of all the applications that are available within the module. And then you can just do a get-evergreen app uh, for the application that you'd like and simply grab the direct URL from the vendor site there. And if you want to get really cute and smart with it, you could actually just have PowerShell uh, automatically download the latest versions like I do. And speaking of application downloads, I saw that the awesome Tom's Nostenberg pointed out on Twitter that Power Toys from Microsoft soon will be delivered as a per-user MSI EXE installer, which I think it may already be available. Um, but this caused some confusion at first, with some worried that this would mean the per-machine installer version would be replaced. It appears in the GitHub form that it was confirmed a machine-wide installer will remain available. I saw Tom's raise some potential issues with the per user installer actually using all users equal to one property for the MSI and putting down components for the system rather than the logged in user with Clint from Microsoft stating that he would look into it. So if you're trying out power toys and you grab that uh, per user installer, I guess maybe beware for this initial release that it has the potential to maybe put some uh, directories or files down erroneously uh, for the system account, not for the logged in user. Personally, I feel like uh, per user installs are a good thing, but maybe not so much 
when they're being delivered as like traditional local installs um, because that can run into problems. And of course, there's always also going to be use cases where it still makes more sense for certain enterprises to target based on machine uh, rather than to user. But a lot more uh, with modern application management, it makes sense to target the users who might be using any device um, for working from. So it gives more flexibility. But there are certainly some challenges that need to be overcome, particularly when using those uh, traditional installers. Even though I feel it genuinely has a potential to be transformative, <laughs> I am actually pretty tired about covering ChatGPT already. Uh, but I'd be remiss if I didn't keep reporting on it. Uh, it was reported recently by windowscentral.com that information of Microsoft's enhanced Bing search powered by ChatGPT was set for imminent release as screenshots were shared showing it at play. And I'm not sure if the leak prompted Microsoft to rush out a statement or um, to actually release the preview information right away, uh, but that is what happened. Microsoft published a blog post about the feature and launched it into preview this week. They state that the AI-powered Bing search engine and Edge browser available in preview now from Bing.com to deliver better search, more complete answers, a new chat experience, and the ability to generate content is thought by them to be tools as an AI co-pilot for the web. The new Bing is available today in a limited preview on desktops and everyone can visit Bing.com today to try to sample queries and sign up for the waitlist. The sample queries are very limited and it doesn't really give a great idea of the power of it, in my opinion. Um, really, it's just kind of pre-canned queries that return the same results, so it's not great. Um, they said they're going to scale the preview to millions in the coming weeks and a mobile experience will soon be in preview too. Uh, when I tried it, I could run a few canned queries, like I said, but for everything else, I was prompted to join a waiting list for access. Interestingly, uh, they're saying you can gain quicker access to the preview if you follow um, some steps that they recommend, which includes um, setting your default browser to Edge, um, setting MSN as your homepage, which, oh man, that's like the, the fox getting into the hen house. Hey, there's this hot commodity out here uh, and you really want to try it out. Well, you got to sign up for this stuff you're less excited about. It's kind of uh, uh, getting around the whole anti-competition stuff they've been hit with uh, by getting a really hot product that people want and then saying, hey, we'll give you quicker access if you do these things too. Oddly enough, along with the AI-powered search, the Edge team announced this week enhanced PDF support within the browser by using Adobe Acrobat's PDF engine. I think it's a good move, personally, because the PDF experience uh, with the default settings within Edge has sucked. <laughs> so this can only be better, I hope. In a follow-up to a story I reported on last year, it appears the Ubiquiti data breach story is about to reach its thrilling conclusion. If you don't remember this story, it was wild. A former employee of the firm exfiltrated many gigs of data while connected to a Surfshark VPN to cover his tracks, but while downloading the data, the VPN momentarily failed, which exposed his IP address. Just days after being questioned by the FBI, the former engineer 
contacted tech journalists posing as a whistleblower, telling them of security flaws within the firm, which led to a sudden 20% fall in the stock value of the company. While the engineer has pled guilty to the charges of wire fraud, making false statements to the FBI and transmitting a program to a protected computer that intentionally caused damage, he now faces a maximum of 35 years in prison and is scheduled to be sentenced on May 10th of this year. Don't be like this guy. The Irish health system ransomware attack that happened a couple of summers ago, which has been used as an example by InfoSec experts who like to point to it as being a very well detailed case of a ransomware attack. Um, well, last week, Bloomberg published an update on the attack, going into detail on the operational and human impact the attack had. So, for example, it was stated that treatment was greatly slowed and they were managing patients in the blind without access to previous information in many cases. It was self-evident that that carried great risk and they were plunged into darkness. And nearly two years after the attack, the attack has left an enduring mark on the HSC. The organization is implementing a plan to modernize its computer infrastructure and toughen cybersecurity at a cost that's likely to extend into the hundreds of millions of euros, which is a point that I actually reported on the podcast previously. Hospital staff during the attack had to ask patients what they could remember about their own medical histories and medication routines, then create new handwritten notes. And obviously this was risky given that not all patients could recall such information reliably and some had trouble communicating in English. A person involved with the HSE stated that it was frightening. And this victim stated, quote, Our biggest worry was if we do an operation on a woman and we don't know enough about her and she dies in theater, God forbid because of blood loss or she has a stroke because we didn't realize she had this or that wrong with her, end quote. The hospital's neonatal unit relied on computers to produce pharmaceutical calculations for premature babies, some of whom were on ventilators and in need of critical care, so the hack left it without a critical tool. Interestingly, it also reports on the ransomware gang and sheds a little more light on perhaps why they suddenly provided a decryption key and never published the data they stole as a former gang member reportedly shared some internal messages with Bloomberg showing what was the biggest attack on a healthcare system in history, which should have been very lucrative for them, actually turned into a nightmare for the group as they suffered reputational damage and internally some of its members were spooked by the more visceral consequences of the attack on the HSE. Later, when a member attacked another health system in the US, internal chats showed anger within the group and requests to kick this member out of their group. So it seems... I think I've reported multiple times on the podcast that there was kind of a rule, <laughs> a robber's rule, really, because they're essentially thieves. Uh, but there was a rule to not attack healthcare facilities because of the grave consequences. But more and more, there's some brazen uh, gangs or maybe members within the gangs who are carrying out attacks on health systems. And it seems perhaps in this case, the contact gang uh, decided, whoa, this is too spicy, this is too risky, uh, give them the decryption key and walk away. And that's exactly what happened, as reports suggest that the contact gang essentially just 
broke communication with the HSE after giving the decryption keys. Um, they did state, keep stating that they were going to uh, share the data publicly if they didn't pay even after they gave the decryption key, but they never actually followed through the, with that threat and just stopped communicating altogether. So it seems like there's at least some conscious within some of the group and hopefully in future these gangs will stop targeting these uh, healthcare systems and find a better way to uh, prevent unintentional harm to healthcare systems because that has happened too where healthcare systems have been attacked but not intentionally uh, they probably just had like a programmatic scan and uh, just automated attack so we can only hope these attacks stop and rather hopeful is the fact that as reported on the podcast previously the number of victims who are paying the ransoms has been going down considerably year on year now some quick hit stories to wrap up the news for this week microsoft announced general availability of multimedia redirection for windows 365 and windows 365 users uh, multimedia redirection is supported on both chrome and edge browsers for windows Multimedia redirection enables smooth video playback while viewing videos in a browser running on Windows 365. And prior to the availability of MMR, as they're calling it, media was rendered once in the Azure VM and then again in the remote client. With the redirection enabled, the media element is remoted from the browser to the local machine, reducing processing in the cloud and resulting in smoother playback as well as significant cost savings. And if you're a VMware or Citrix customer, you should already be pretty familiar with this concept, our feature. Well, more than 30 of the most popular business sites are already supported today, and presumably that number will only increase in the future. And as previously reported on the podcast, this multimedia redirection is also available in Azure Virtual Desktop. Also announced by Microsoft this week, a public preview of symmetric NAT support for RDP Shortpath is now available. This feature is the extension of the already generally available RDP Shortpath feature that allows uh, people to, to establish a UDP connection indirectly using Relay with the traversal using relays around NAT protocol for symmetric NAT. The feature is currently available in 14 regions in preview and is available in validation host pools only. The connections initiated across regions will use UDP established through TURN, uh, which is the protocol uh, where that protocol is available or where the feature is available. Otherwise, the connection will revert to the existing mechanism. In what may go down as the most costly demo ever, Google unveiled their ChatGPT AI competitor, and unfortunately during the demo, the AI was asked a question about the first satellite, and it got the answer wrong. And this led to Google's value dropping by $100 billion. So a bad day. I talked to a friend about it, and the friend brought up, you know, ChatGPT isn't always accurate either. There's a lot of errors in the results there. But I think ChatGPT had the advantage of being first. So you just see the things that are right and you're like, wow, this is powerful. This is amazing. And personally, I'm actually working on a blog, even though I'm sick about talking about ChatGPT. I have a blog in my drafts showing kind of where things are go wrong with ChatGPT, but where I see the value and maybe how you can work around some of the shortcomings. 
So I'll share that pretty soon and share it on the podcast too. Microsoft have released the February 2023 update for the MSAX packaging tool, uh, where they say they've made improvements to help compatibility for applications and hopefully drive up success in packaging applications into MSIX. And some of the enhancements include support for portable apps. And I see there's a little uh, GIF showing uh, just importing in a zip file and packaging that into MSIX. Uh, it's improved child process monitoring. So, you know, if your installer is spawning off child processes, it should be more accurately capturing those types of installs. Uh, they're excluding a lot of uh, default Windows services, which will hopefully improve success rate too. Um, they've got some PSF or Pack Support frame, Framework uh, argument redirection, and they've also improved the MSAX package editor and made some quick inclusions to TraceFix, which will also hopefully improve the compatibility, though that I guess that remains to be seen. I'm hopeful though, I'm really hoping that MSAX does improve and more applications can be successfully packaged with it. And finally this week, there has been a call for speakers for the Scottish Summit, which is a Microsoft Cloud community event covering the full Microsoft Cloud platform. The event will be held in Manchester on August 5th, which is a bit of a mind warp because it's the Scottish Summit, but it's being held in England. Uh, but it's a really great opportunity for people in the community to get involved. If you've never had the chance to speak at a conference, this could be a really great start. So consider submitting your session. Um, the closed date for submitting applications, I believe, is March 5th. So don't sleep on this. Uh, get submitting as soon as possible. And now this episode, Scripts, Tricks, and Tips. Earlier this week, I checked out a really excellent episode of the Run As Radio podcast, which just in general, that podcast is awesome. <laughs> I wish my podcast had as high a production quality as that podcast. The opening jingle, uh, just the overall production qualities and the great voice of the host, uh, Richard, I believe the name is. Um, it's just a really great podcast. And uh, they had an excellent guest, uh, Jeremy Moskowitz. So uh, Jeremy was a guest on the podcast a few weeks ago, I believe, before the end of the year. And they were covering laps, including his insights on the latest version, which he was calling it laps version one and laps version two. But essentially, there's been some pretty significant changes uh, to the product and he discusses that. So if you're using LAPS today and maybe you're considering uh, moving to LAPS version two as it's being referred to in the podcast, definitely check out this episode of the podcast because uh, you, it's a really great opportunity to sit under the learning tree with uh, Jeremy. And the also awesome Morton Petholt had tweeted this week that if you're using FSLogix version 2210, and your users are getting a black screen on sign-in, it might be because of roaming of the recycle bin. It's listed as a known issue and a possible fixes to disable roaming of it. Microsoft is currently working on a hotfix and I feel like I covered this on the podcast uh, maybe recently or maybe even uh, in December um, when I was reading out some of the release notes for that version. You know, it's 2210, so it might have even been in October or November. I'm not too sure, but I'm pretty sure I did cover that because I remember the recycle bin roaming thing being listed. Uh, but yeah, timely. 
uh, because you may not even realize that this is the cause of an issue and you've just been kind of scratching your head what's going on. So if you're dealing with those black screens on sign-in, uh, follow Morton's advice. Merrill Fernando of Microsoft shared a pretty useful tip. He said, did you know that Microsoft has a brand new handy self-service Windows 10 Plus troubleshooter built right into the devices blade in the Azure AD portal over at addevices.cmd.ms. And it runs multiple tests on devices to detect issues and also provides some useful remediation steps. I did not know about that. That's kind of cool. So you might not have known about it either, and now you do. Uh, finally, I saw that Forbes, who had an interesting article on the fact that healthcare is waiting with open arms for tech workers. So they're covering from the angle that obviously the tech sector has seen massive layoffs as reported on multiple episodes of the podcast late last year and also early this year. And there's a lot of people in the tech sector currently looking for jobs. Well, they say that, you know, job opportunities are booming in the healthcare sector. And I think this has actually been the case for several years now because there's heavy investment into uh, digitization within healthcare, uh, just pretty much around the world. And they've also been trying to optimize and modernize their existing processes in that digital world. So, uh, yeah, if you find yourself unemployed, definitely consider working in healthcare. Although I will warn you, <laughs> I've worked most of my uh, career in healthcare settings. It can be quite challenging. It's rewarding, particularly when you're dealing with like nurse nursing staff, who to me are really the heart and soul of a healthcare system. You know, the nursing staff, in my experience, you know, they tend to be level-headed, rational, and compassionate people because that's part of their job. And they're very appreciative and empathetic towards IT when you're trying to help them. Um, they really do appreciate it and show that appreciation to you. And they do such important work. It is really a matter of life and death. So helping them and them being so appreciative can be a very fulfilling experience. But working in healthcare IT in general, man, it's it's a real grind. Um, there's a lot of out-of-hours work. It's obviously 24-hour operation, 365 days a year. No real let-up for the holidays. You'll probably be in an on-call rotation. You may be on-call during Christmas, during Easter, uh, whatever holidays you might have, your birthday. It could just be luck of the draw. So it's definitely a challenging lifestyle, but it can be rewarding. Uh, and if you've never done it before and you feel like kind of a baptism of fire, getting your hands dirty a little bit, yeah, I would encourage it. It was definitely a very uh, great experience for me in my career to work in a couple of different health systems. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the podcast. As I said, I'm traveling next week. I'm going to get a podcast episode out. I'm not sure if it's going to be early in the week or late in the week. So, <laughs> hey, it'll be a surprise. Thank you all so much for listening.